Give me everything you got. Play fast, play hard. Let's beat these boys tonight in their house. It's party time. It's party time. Let's go. You are listening to the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast. Now here's your host, Brand Duffy. That's right, another week, and the Senior Bowl is in the review mirror as the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast continues. I'm Fran Duffy, and as always, I think we've got a great show for you here on episode number 90. At the top of this week's show, we've got Chalk Talk, where I chat with former NFL scout and the director of scouting development for the Scouting Academy and Dan Hatman. Dan and I talk about the entire evaluation and player acquisition process. So what goes into signing a big free agent or how many people evaluate a player before he's drafted by an NFL team? Those are all topics I dive into with Dan before we get into the scouting report where this week I went to Twitter and I wanted to look for a player that really stood out at the Senior Bowl and I let you guys decide who would I do a scouting report on. We'll get into who that player is later on in the show and I'll answer how early will he get taken and would he make sense here in Philadelphia. We have got a ton to get into so let's not waste any time. Dan Hatman and I talk about the entire player evaluation and more importantly the acquisition of talent in the NFL. Let's get to that now in Chalk Talk. Let's get down to business. It's time for Chalk Talk. Joined now by former NFL scout. You can follow him on Twitter at Dan underscore Hatman. It, of course, is Dan Hatman, the director of scouting development at the Scouting Academy. Dan worked for the Eagles, the Jets, and the Giants. He has had a great career After the NFL, setting up this whole scouting academy, it's absolutely a great experience for anybody looking to get involved, both not just with the NFL or with college football, but just if you want to learn more about the game and be a little bit more well-versed when you talk with your friends on Saturdays and Sundays. Uh, Dan is your man. You definitely want to get hooked up with the, the scouting academy. So, Dan, appreciate the time. It's a busy time after you guys just got back from the Senior Bowl, but thanks for joining us. No, thanks for having me. So you just got back from the Senior Bowl, and everybody wants to know, okay, so what's next? We, you know, we had all the buildup leading up to the All-Star Games. The Senior Bowl kind of ties that ribbon, puts that in the past. What goes on around the league now? What are scouting departments across the NFL doing as we speak here today? So we gotta, we'll go one month back, and then we'll move forward. So the December period of time for teams, uh, there's two different things moving at the same time. So on one hand, all of the work that your college scouts have been collecting during the course of the fall, sometime in the first couple weeks of December, you're going to have your first set of college meetings. And what you're doing is you're getting the initial grades up on the board and figuring out which players have character, medical, uh, red flags, or other concerns that you really want to vet out in the process, figuring out which players have gaps in the evaluation, that you're looking to better understand. And then that's what helps you plan out your all-star game uh, plan of attack up to and including the senior bowl. And then that'll move into the combine and so forth. Secondarily to that, your front office and your coaching staff will be completing the regular season. Some obviously be fortunate enough to move on to the playoffs. For those that are not, you start moving through your own internal roster development. I'm sorry, your roster um grading component you want to look at where your team's at you got to do a self-scout where are we at what do we have where are we strong where are we weak uh coaching movement happens you start to build those pieces back up 
And those two things coming together give you an understanding of where we're at, which of our players might be free agents, who do we expect to sign, uh, what is the draft market starting to look like, et cetera. And that really gets you lined up on both sides to look at both free agency and then the upcoming draft and figure out how might we attack this process to build a 90-man roster to move into the summer with. It's interesting because I always think, uh, you know, from a college perspective, you know, from when I, my time at Temple, right after the season, and obviously you had recruiting leading up to signing day, which is this week, ironically, but you also had that point, and you talked about the self-scouting, where every coaching staff looks inward at all the trends and everything that they do on a weekly basis on Sundays with the, from a play-calling respect, but you also, like you mentioned, have to factor in the personnel side. So everything at every position how do you look short-term and how do you look long-term moving forward into 2017 and beyond? So I guess the, the, here's my next question because we're at that point, and this is always the case. We're always in the season of player acquisition. That never stops. But now that we've reached the offseason, every fan wants to see their team get a little bit better, and that certainly is the case here in Philadelphia. So the main reason why I wanted to bring you on is so you could really kind of take a step-by-step into the process of a player acquisition. You talked about those meetings that happen on the back end of the regular season. That leads us into where we are at this point as the self-scout process takes hold. What happens next, I guess, that it results in those player acquisitions that we see in that first week of March leading up to free agency? Yeah, so your, your post-All-Star game circuit, so now you've started to expose your executives and your coaches to the college player pool, you have added more to those evaluations, seen them in a different setting, hopefully gleaned some more information about them. And then your coaches are going to spend some time over the next few weeks. Your coaching staff should be 90% uh, put together, if not more at this point. And you're going to start looking at how do we want to attack things on Sundays moving into next year. And the quiet of January and early February really provides you as a coaching staff with that opportunity. Once they have that plan in place, okay, here's how we want to look next year on the field. Then again, we look back at our roster and establish, okay, do we have the pieces to execute on that? So if you're a team that's been running a lot of three-wide personnel and you're looking at trends and recognizing maybe 12 personnel would be better suited for us, and so we need to go find a second tight end or and or third tight end to make sure that even with injury, we can still look good on Sundays in a manner that we deem fit. You look at your roster and say, okay, we've got one guy that we can trust. We want to go acquire at least two more. One has to be ready to play right now. One could be developmental, but the earlier he can play, the better. Then you start looking at the free agency pool. What's there? How do they fit into that projection? What might they cost? Then again, looking at your college pool, what's there? You know, with the depth of that position in this draft class, you're going to see players with good talent, uh, good skill sets and talent levels potentially drop through the first 50 to 100 picks as opposed to years with only one or two tight ends that are worth a darn. And those guys obviously get uh, raised up a little bit. And so you start putting a plan of attack. Okay, the free agent market might be thin, not a whole lot there. So we're going to go target one mid-tier guy, veteran, that we can get in for $3 million a year or less. We know we can lock that in, start talking to that person's agent at the combine, kind of getting the wheels going on that. And then look at the draft class and start really honing in on, we want to spend time this spring really getting our coaches involved, 
and our executives involved, boots on the ground in these towns, working through that player pool and figuring out which of the, you know, let's say 10 or 15 guys who may be worthy of consideration do we really want on our roster. And so you move through that through different positions, depends on where your weaknesses are, uh, how you've identified those. If you think you have internal candidates to fill those, you know, last year, Green Bay, for example, like Casey Hayward going free agency, understanding that the, his compensation level in the open market wouldn't fit their cap structure. And they had a lot of first and second round picks invested in the secondary. And so they were going to put their chips on player development in that category, as opposed to just going and diving back into the market. So you got to weigh these things against each other. It's interesting, too, that you bring that up and the relationship between planning for free agency and then also the draft, because a lot of people will say, oh, you know, you take best player available at the draft. But obviously that planning for, for that event goes for, for months, obviously, going back a year with the college scouting department uh, leading up to draft weekend. So take us through that. When, when a player is selected in the draft, I think a lot of fans look at that and say, oh, that's the head coach's pick or this is the GM's pick or whoever the decision maker. But how many sets of eyeballs actually go into studying and evaluating and kind of creating the value of a player before he's put on a draft board for a specific team? Well, I think we'll we'll kind of take a, a relevant example for the Eagles there and take a look at Carson Wentz last year. So going into the summertime, he was an unknown in the scouting communities. But at that point in time, to my understanding, was not an A player on national or bless those lists, meaning he wasn't a first priority. As soon as your college scouts hit the ground in August, you have to be in South Dakota State taking a look at the player. And if he was on the list, we'll get to him when we get to him. And so depending on who your plane scout was last year and the nature of their schedule, they might have got a first look at a player like Carson somewhere in the, you know, arguably September to maybe even early October range, depending on how that went. So that was your first set of eyes on the ground collecting information. We'll go ahead and assume that if a person came back and said, looks good, this is a worthy guy for consideration. So then that report goes to your college director and your GM and says, hey, this player's been flagged now. I got a good grade on this guy. We need to start taking a deeper look. So now you're moving into the October range and your executive level starting to come in. They're starting to get their first look, but all the film isn't in on the player yet, right? The games are still being played at this point. So you're just kind of marking it down. Okay. We've watched a couple games. These are intriguing. These are questions. And that's how your whole fall goes. And so by the time you hit Thanksgiving and the end of the regular season in college, hopefully you have a pretty substantive report on this player but it's not like he'd been vetted by everybody in the organization since day one. That slowly but surely built upon each, uh, itself over and over again. Then the regular season ends, and now, like I said, that's when you get your coaches involved because they're not on the field at that point. So they're getting their first look, see him in Mobile, see him at the Combine, private workouts, pro days, what have you. And so now all of a sudden you've gone from one guy on the ground in early fall, taking a look at a player, to all of a sudden, everybody up to, including the owner, you might have 10 sets of eyes at that point, watching all the film, looking at the metrics, interviewing or studying interviews of um, 
working them out privately, what have you, to get enough information for the organization on the whole to feel comfortable with, okay, this is a player that we're interested in. That runs in a, in a different set of circumstances from a guy that comes into the season is, you know, this guy's number one early on. The sets of eyes have been on him since the summer. He might have five sets of eyes starting in the summer and building the 10 or 15, whereas some of the guys coming from smaller places or might have not have been fully up um, on everybody's perspective screens, they trickle in over time. And that's why we hear the stock is rising. Sometimes that only means that the people that actually make the decisions, the execs and the coaches, are just finally getting their eyes on the player as opposed to the area scouts. That's why I always find it funny, Dan, when we hear in the fall and even the early parts of the offseason, you know, oh, well, this team has this grade on said player. You know, oh, this team views uh, Miles Garrett. He's at the top of their draft board, and it's Thanksgiving. Or, uh, you know, he's got a sixth-round grade or a seventh-round grade on this corner from Appalachian State in December. I mean, those things, obviously, look, all of those, you mentioned it, up to ten sets of eyes may watch a player over the draft process. But really, what, what does it come down to? I got, it's, obviously, it's, every, it's very different depending on the team, but everybody kind of has the, all their different processes on who makes the final call and had how it's made. But we'll talk about that process, I guess, after everybody sees the prospect, whether it's live, on tape, meeting them in person, all the other workouts, how does the board then get set? And then how are those decisions impact draft weekend? So this is where the we, we talk about multiple processes, 32 teams, 32 potential ways of executing this. At some point, it all boils down to this. There is one final decision maker who will pull the trigger. They are, there's somebody contractually noted as the final decision maker with draft authority. And that person has to make the decision. They have to acquire information from all those other people in the building that they deem can give them actionable and insightful information. They have to aggregate all that together and they have to decide the valuation of the player. And again, I, I separate this from evaluation, going out and studying if a player has traits, if they can excel in certain situations, how big or athletic they are. That's absolutely a part of it and a great part of it. But at some point you got to step back and look at the market and you got to decide where do I need to go to acquire this player? So again, someone like Carson Wentz, with the nature of the quarterback position, with the information being gleaned from the people on your staff about where the league and other teams might be on them, and overall, in my opinion, a negligible difference between you know picks two and ten, or what have you, in terms of opportunity cost in most situations going ahead and making a move up to acquire someone who the evaluation says this guy has a very good chance of being the kind of quarterback we need. You know, sometimes you just got to make those moves and you got to get it um, when you can, because you're not going to get a second shot at that. Plenty of other positions where you might get that opportunity, but at some point in the organization and right now in Philadelphia, it's Howie Roseman. He's collecting all that information. He's in the trust, Joe Douglas. Scout the players. He's going to trust Doug Peterson to provide him with, hey, here's what I need to put my offense and defense on the field. He's going to trust that all the other people around them providing information are going to do their job and bring him actionable information, and he's going to pull the trigger. 
So you talk about who's got that final call, and we get back from the Senior Bowl this weekend, and we find out that the San Francisco 49ers have officially hired former NFL safety uh, and current Fox analyst John Lynch as the general manager. What were your initial reactions to the hire, and what have you heard from people you've talked to? What does it say, I guess, for the landscape of the league and the hiring process right now? We've started to see over the last couple of years – more people named these positions that don't necessarily have the most conventional scouting background working their way up through the tree. So I, you know, this, this is a position in general manager that's always fascinating. I mean, I study it every year. Who's going where? Who's interviewed? What do we know about them? What's their background, et cetera? And between the people that have historically interviewed, those who have been rumored to interview or requested and then private conversations with people around the league about candidates that they feel would be worthy of getting in that chair at some point. I've got a master list of somewhere between 60 and 65 names of people that somewhere along the way, someone has said, hey, this person might make a good GM. And this is not a knock against John Lynch, but he's not on that list. So nowhere along the way was he a, um, an expected candidate for the role simply because of his career path and going into broadcasting. And so, you know, when Schefter's report came out, and uh, not just the tweet, but the full text on that, John Lynch actually reached out to Kyle Shanahan, supposedly somewhere between a week and 10 days ago, and volunteered to get in the mix for the job. And the vetting process on him went from there. That's where it kind of got interesting for me, because I'm watching a hiring process that started with nine candidates that accepted invitations or the opportunities um, to interview, I should say. And from them, the final five were determined of that. I believe uh, three backed out and they were down to their two of the original nine. Those people interviewed and all of a sudden we have, you know, the, the true dark horse candidate coming out of nowhere. And looking back at the, the stuff recently, I know we have a Cleveland example, a little different model built around Sashi and Paul DePodesta and what have you, uh, Andrew Barry, et cetera. And then now, obviously, we have John coming out, and neither Sashi nor John have your traditional background. I will say that those two, I don't know if that makes a trend yet. You know, if you look at Tennessee last year and they're hiring, Detroit last year and they're hiring, India this year and they're hiring, those are all more tried and true examples of someone coming through the pipeline, paying their dues, learning the skills, and getting there. John has a Stanford education, arguably a Hall of Fame player. Um, has many things that would get you excited about at least interviewing him and meeting with him. Sounds like he was very impressive in that. There are going to be mechanisms that leave just football, that leave simple communication, that leave the evaluation of players and move into, do you understand how to acquire coaches in this league? Do you understand how to work with agents in this league? Do you understand how the draft process goes and how to value players in this league? Because those are things that are learned over time um, and not necessarily overnight pieces. Now, it sounds like he's going to add at least Mark Dominic, maybe even Dennis Hickey, if he can keep Tom Gamble. You know, he's going to have potentially somewhere between two, three, and if the Shelton Quarles report coming out of Tampa has any legs to it, maybe even four guys that have those years of experience they could be the ones funneling him that, as I deem, actionable information. And then he sits in a position to aggregate all of that 
and hopefully for San Francisco has the football acumen um, to nail those selections. So, Dan, the last question for you. Uh, we talked about the, the way to work yourself up through the, the scouting ladder, and you've done such a great job of kind of fostering the initial part of that process with the Scouting Academy. I know you guys just got back from Mobile at the Senior Bowl, and I wanted to ask you about the experience your students got at the Scouting Academy throughout the week at the event. I know you partner with Phil Savage and his group down in Mobile. Tell us about the week for your students and why it's really kind of a, a rare experience what they're able to get down there at the Senior Bowl. Well, I would be remiss if I didn't jump on your, your Phil Savage point there. He's, uh, he allows our guys to have this opportunity. You know, His belief in what we're trying to accomplish uh, is invaluable in the process here. But what we do is we go through those who have completed at least a semester of our program and identify those that have excelled. And based on merit, we pass out invitations. And so this year we brought 27 uh, men and women to Mobile. And they had an opportunity unlike anything else in that they were fully credentialed to be everywhere the scouts, executives, and coaches were and to be around them at practice to experience all of those different events with them in those settings. And then additionally, we provided a nighttime classroom where we had a director of player personnel from one club come by, a GM from another come by, um, former Hall of Fame player, former NFL offensive coordinator, a current NFL position coach, all came through and taught on different subjects in and around the game. So not only do they get the networking opportunity, and kind of the once-in-a-lifetime exposure to that process, but again, continued to work on their craft and their education. Well, Dad, I know it's a, a really an awesome experience for anybody that's interested in getting into the business. Again, that's a Scouting Academy. You can follow that on Twitter, at The Scout Academy. Dan, appreciate the time, as always, here on the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast. We will talk to you again soon. Thank you for having me. Great stuff from Dan, one of my favorite follows on Twitter. And again, you can follow him just like I do, at Dan underscore Hatman. And while you're at it, I'm at FDuffy3. That's where I post all of the podcasts I'm a part of and all of our X's and O's content that we produce here at PhiladelphiaEagles.com. And you know I greatly appreciate everybody that promotes this podcast on social media. That's one way to support the show, but the other is to go on iTunes or go on Stitcher, give us a rating and leave us a comment. I wanted to give a shout-out to Michael N.M., who left a comment on our iTunes page saying how much he enjoyed the show. So thanks to Michael and all of you out there for your continued support of this show and all the rest of our podcast offerings on PhiladelphiaEagles.com. All right, let's keep the show going. I told you earlier that I'd get into my notes on a player of your choosing, so let's get to that player now in Scouting Report. Dim those lights. We're headed to the film room for the Scouting Report. All right, so I went on Twitter on Tuesday morning and asked, Who's a player that you guys want to hear some notes on? Who do you want to see featured in our scouting report? And I got a few answers right away for Toledo running back Kareem Hunt, who stood out at the Senior Bowl last week, has been a very productive player over the course of the last three years. That's why I was really glad that you were all excited to hear about him. Uh, he came in at the Senior Bowl, 5'10 and a half, 208 pounds. What was interesting about that was 
He was listed by scouts at 237 in the preseason. He was listed by Toledo as 225. So the fact that he came in a little bit lighter at 208 pounds was notable last Tuesday at the weigh-ins down in Mobile. Now, Hunt nearly entered the 2016 NFL Draft last year after leading his team in rushing despite the fact that he missed four games and didn't start two others. So very productive throughout his career with the Rockets. I've watched him again for the last three years, so going back to 2014. So I'm really excited to, get, uh, to give you guys a little bit of a scouting report on him. Now, if we get to the notes, two-and-a-half-year starter and the former offensive coordinator and the current head coach, Jason Candle's shotgun spread offense. So lined up mostly in the shotgun throughout his career in Toledo. Ran a good mix of zone and gap schemes, so he's got the ability to fit into either kind of system, mostly out of one-back sets with no fullback. I thought he was a very decisive runner, really good vision. He sets his, his blocks up well, and he's got the ability to find creases and get downhill quickly. He sets up his blocks. He displays an innate feel as a ball carrier in traffic. That was one thing that really stood out to me was his ability to get downhill quickly. He had very few negative runs on tape. Rarely was he seen dancing in the backfield. He added weight going into his junior year. So going into 2015 was when he kind of put on some of those pounds. And I was really interested to see, all right, how's he going to look with the added weight as a junior? And I thought he ran a little bit heavy. This year, he played much more to that size. And I, and I was really impressed with how he ran this year as a senior. He shows relatively light feet. He's got decent quickness, lateral agility. Had a number of what I call Gumby runs. What's a Gumby run? You think of Gumby, you know, the elastic guy that can bend in all the different directions. He's got that ability when he takes a hit in his lower half to really kind of stay balanced and, and stay downhill, stay upright and make a play. Uh, and he, he had a few of those on tape. Plays with good balance. Always finds a way to land on his feet stay upright. He's a slippery runner. Has the wiggle to shake defenders in a phone booth out in space. I can remember a play last week in practice at the Senior Bowl where he was one-on-one -on -one with a cornerback in Jordan Lewis from Michigan, and he made Lewis miss in the, in the open field and got to the perimeter. He had a long run in the game on Saturday at the Senior Bowl where he made the first man miss and was up the left sideline. So he's got that ability to make that first man miss, which is so imperative to be a successful NFL running back. Like I, I mentioned, his ability to be slippery, both in a phone booth and out in space. He's also just, he's not afraid to hit it up between the tackles. He's more powerful this year than I had ever seen him before. Turns his feet through contact. He looks to deliver a blow as a, as a ball carrier. Really physical, competitive runner. He'll lower his shoulder. He'll fight for extra yardage. His arm tackles alone will not get him to the ground. And he uses the stiff arm really, really well to keep defenders at bay. He only had one fumble in the 14 games that I've studied, and Dane Brugger from CBS actually put a, a stat out that he had only had one fumble in his entire career, over 250 touches. Uh, so that was really, really impressive um, to see that from Hunt, that ball security, which is obviously so important for lasting in the NFL. He's got good hands out of the backfield. He can reel in passes away from his frame, and he did line up around the formation and run routes like a wide receiver at times. So he was used in a variety of ways. So there's a lot of positives there with Kareem Hunt. I was just going for a while. Now, here's, here are the negatives. He did lead the, league in, or lead the team in rushing as a junior. He was not the feature back. It was part of a running back committee. The reason for that was that he had some injuries. He's fought, this, was, this past year as a senior was the, full, the first season that he had played a full slate of games due to various injuries throughout his career. He only had more than 20 carries three times uh, during his junior season in 2015. He was suspended for a violation of team rules as a junior early in that 2015 season. So there are some questions he'll have to answer during the pre-draft process, and it was good to see him stay healthy this year, but his durability will be brought into question a little bit moving forward. I didn't think he wowed me with his explosiveness, his suddenness in a short area. He's not that explosive perimeter runner. Obviously, Dalvin Cook is on one end of the spectrum, and I don't think that Hunt is 
on the far end of the other way, but he's not the most explosive guy in a short area. And really the, the big thing with him is he needs work in pass pro. He was a little bit up and down during practice at the Senior Bowl last week, and that was the same way on tape. He just, sometimes he'll just kind of duck his head or throw an arm out at a blitzing linebacker or defensive back. He's just got to be a little bit more consistent using his, using his hands as a take-on guy, as a blocker. So a lot of positives to take away. Still, still some things you want to worry about. I think he played to his size as a senior. He put on that weight before his junior season. I like his competitiveness. I like his downhill, no-nonsense running style. He does have a little bit of versatility. I think he can fill a role as a third back in an offense, and he's got to improve as a blocker. And if he can do that, I think he does have the ability to be a starter in the NFL. I just don't think it's going to be right away. I really like Kareem Hunt. It's just going to be a matter of working him in and making sure that he's trustworthy off the field and he can stay healthy and all those things. But as a talent, I think he's probably one of the more underrated backs in this class. So that's how I feel about Kareem Hunt. I do think that he's going to end up being a, a, probably around a, a early day three, potentially a late day two. So we're talking you know, third, fourth, fifth round selection overall. Would he make sense here in Philadelphia? That would be really interesting because he's got that ability to play in either kind of blocking scheme. The Eagles use both here. They obviously value the ability to catch the ball out of the backfield, and he can do that. So that would be very, very interesting to see Kareem Hunt and how he would fit here in Doug Peterson's offense here in Philadelphia. So great stuff from Dan Hatman. And all of you out there listening, whether you're on iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Spotify, Google Play, and, of course, on PhiladelphiaEagles.com and the Eagles mobile app. Thank you. And again, if you get the time, rate the show, leave us a comment, let us know what you think. Don't be afraid to leave a question. And honestly, the best way to get your player talked about in our scouting report segment is for you to go online and do that. Go and leave a comment, rate the show, and leave a comment saying that you, this is the player that you want to be talked about in the scouting report segment, and I will make sure that it gets talked about on that next show. So just go and do that whenever you listen. All that being said, I think that'll do it. Another show in the books here on the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast. For everybody here at the Novacare Complex, I'm Fran Duffy. We will talk to you next week.